Welcome to Scoliosis World with Dr. Morningstar, the audio podcast for all things scoliosis. And now, Chief Science Officer for ScoliSmart and Clinic Director for ScoliSmart Clinics Michigan, Dr. Mark Morningstar. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Mark Morningstar. I am the Chief Science Officer for ScoliSmart. And I am going to be talking with you today on this podcast about some of the uh, unique ways in which we approach scoliosis. I think one of the uh, highlights of what we do at ScoliSmart is just the way that we approach and sort of define the condition right from the get-go, which helps us to manage the condition from a more comprehensive strategy. And I think allowing us to do that uh, gives us the tools, gives us the resources to better manage patients across the full spectrum of scoliosis, meaning whether uh, a six-year-old child has an idiopathic juvenile scoliosis or a 65-year-old adult has a degenerative lumbar scoliosis and all things in between, neuromuscular scoliosis, congenital scoliosis, or syndromic scoliosis, or even adults that have had or have idiopathic scoliosis that have had fusion surgery. So we, I think the biggest thing that differentiates us from what we do, from what others do, is the idea that we have the ability to help people across the spectrum. The reason that I think we have the most comprehensive uh, treatment strategy is because we tend to uh, take all facets of the problem into account. And what I mean by that is, of course, if I were to go out here into Grand Blanc and, you know, survey a thousand people in the local community and ask them what scoliosis is, the first thing they're going to do is to think of what the curvature looks like on an x-ray and say, that curvature is what scoliosis is. A hundred percent of people you survey will tell you that. The problem with that is that in reality, that curvature that we see on an x-ray that we all uh, sort of use synonymously with the term scoliosis, that curvature is really only the predominant symptom of a larger problem, or let's say a more encompassing problem. And what I mean by that is that there, for a long time now, I think we're approaching 30 plus years now of research published worldwide, that has documented a lot of the other underlying concurrent abnormalities that children and adults with scoliosis have that their peers who don't have scoliosis don't have. For example, I just have pulled up here a review. Uh, this is from 2017. It's on PubMed. Uh, Archives of Orthopedic Trauma and Surgery from 2017. So a very recent study. Uh, sort of outlining all of the different factors that go into scoliosis. And of course, one of the big ones is genetic. And the reason why that's important is that historically speaking, the, the, the investigation of scoliosis in terms of genetics has been this idea that people have always been looking for one gene variant or one gene mutation that was singularly responsible for causing scoliosis. And that was sort of the focus early on. But the problem has quickly become in a very short period of time that there are dozens of studies 
that have identified singular genes that supposedly all singularly cause scoliosis or singularly associated with scoliosis. And the problem with that, of course, is they can't all be right, or maybe they all can be right. And so when you look at it from a perspective of having multiple genetic variations that all sort of cumulatively or collectively cause other problems, when enough of those genetic variants are present, they can start to contribute to downstream disruptions in physiology and normal bodily processes that now can eventually manifest as a spinal curvature that we all recognize or call scoliosis. Other factors besides genetics, there are differences in growth hormone levels. There are differences in estrogen metabolism. There are differences in melatonin deficiency or melatonin production, melatonin signaling, differences in another hormone called calmodulin. Uh, there are differences in vestibular and eye information as, as, as far as the types of information given back to the brain from the eye and the inner ear, which is, of course, essential for normal uh, orientation and verticality and uh, just uh, orientation to gravity or to true vertical. There are differences in the makeup of the discs and tendons and ligament tissue in people who have scoliosis versus people who don't. So there are so many other things that are going along with the curve that by most accounts were all in existence in that individual prior to the onset of that curvature that most of the more progressive worldwide researchers really sort of think that these are either what A, caused the scoliosis to happen in the first place or B, allowed a small curvature to increase to a point where now more conventional treatment is indicated. Whether that be exercises, bracing, surgical fusion, VBT, things like that. So at the end of the day, I think the biggest thing that differentiates ScoliSmart from essentially every other treatment method, not only conventionally, but also even some of the other exercise-based alternative treatment methods, I think the biggest thing is the fact that we actually also try to tackle these other underlying issues at the same time. In our opinion, especially when you look at all of this wealth of information that's online, and I just pulled up one study, there are hundreds. But if you, if you don't try to take a measure to adequately address or mitigate some of these other underlying factors at the same time, frankly, it doesn't matter what physical treatment that child receives or participates in, that physical treatment is going to have a lesser chance of providing a lasting benefit. And we even see this in the longer-term uh, scoliosis fusion studies. I mean, one of the things that doesn't really get talked about a whole lot is that when people are fused as children, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, what does their curves measure? And quite honestly, when you look at a lot of that data, you'll notice if you actually drill down on the Cobb angle changes that those curves, even when they're fused, still slowly progress and increase over time. Now, it might happen at a slower rate compared to somebody who's not fused because, of course, now the body is fighting a titanium rod or two, um, but it still increases over time. And so that is sort of a signal to us that there's still something that served as the impetus for this curvature that was never really addressed. And that really kind of goes to some of the underlying aspects of what triggered the curvature to happen in the first place. 
we, you know, scrolly smart, we operate under the, the presumption that the brain and that the body is an intelligent design and that the curvature that we see on x-ray is not a random occurrence, but quite frankly, an adaptive response to something else going on as a means of decreasing stress or otherwise um, mitigating a bigger problem than what the spinal curvature is immediately causing in the short term. What people have to understand about the spine and spinal control as far as the brain goes is that the brain really, in essence, runs on nothing more than a series of binary options. And the brain will always pick the option that better serves the, broad, the body and the brain in the short term, even if that means forsaking something in the long term. Meaning, if I have a spinal curvature, I can function pretty well, pretty normally for the most part for a relatively normal lifespan and have still a relatively comparable quality of life. Of course, there are points where that's no longer the case, but by and large, that is the case. However, if I have an issue where now I have too much tension on my spinal cord to the point that the spinal cord risks being disrupted or injured or torn or something to that level, my body can't operate too well if I'm now paralyzed. So the brain says, I will create a curve around a tight spinal cord to mitigate the pressure or the axial pull on that spinal cord so that I can still function long-term and in the short-term. Even if that means I have arthritis earlier because of my curvature in 40 years from now, or I have more pain in 40 years from now, guess what? I will still be walking in 40 years from now. And I'll be walking in one year from now. So the brain always sort of picks the short-term binary option if given, if forced to make a choice, let's say. When we take all of that into account, you have to recognize then that scoliosis is really a whole body condition and not really just a spine curvature. And the treatment methods of the future that are going to be able to best help the curvature and frankly, more importantly, help the patient in totality for the longest spectrum of time possible, then it becomes very obvious that any and every treatment method should be focusing on all of these other uh, factors that we know exist in the development or at least the progression of idiopathic scoliosis. For example, take hormones, estrogen metabolism, progesterone metabolism, melatonin metabolism. These things are all very important and, very, and have been well documented in scoliosis. Well, those things can be tested for. And those things, more importantly, can be treated through integrative medicine or functional medicine uh, type means, natural means, or even in certain cases, dietary lifestyle interventions. So that it's not like all of a sudden you're going to have to put an eight-year-old on a drug or give them some kind of weird experimental treatment. Really, you're just supplementing that child with what their body requires in order to normalize the physiology. So if there's something that is preventing that child's body from producing melatonin, for example, an enzyme deficiency, well, it's a pretty straightforward process to supplement that child with that enzyme. So um, the advantage is that none of the treatments are pharmaceutically based. They're all naturally based, which makes, a, which makes it far more palatable to the vast majority of families, including myself. I have four children. I don't want any of my children to be on anything pharmaceutically based if they don't have to be. 
and uh, and I don't expect this. I I expect the same is true of you know virtually all families. So all of the treatment options that we normally recommend are naturally based. The when it comes to exercises themselves, then what you have to bear in mind is the first off, and and this is one thing. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Clayton Stitzel, and I used to always try to tell people, even going way back to when we were still in, in school, is that the body is not a jello mold. And so it's not as simple as saying, okay, we have a curvature, so let's put a brace on this child in the hopes that the, the spinal curvature grows straighter or that they grow out of the curve. Most surgeons who recommend a brace will admit that the whole purpose of a brace is to just try to keep the curve where it's at, especially through growth. The, uh, the downside of that, however, is that, again, you have to go back to the initial premise that the curvature is, by default, an intelligent response to something else. So if you are bracing a child with a curvature and you are doing nothing else for that child, that brace is potentially going against an adaptive response of the body to try to mitigate another problem. If you're not trying to take steps in conjunction with that brace then to mitigate whatever is the cause of that curvature in the first place, then that brace has virtually no chance of success. Again, the body is not a jello mold. We're not uh, the proverbial curved curved tree that somebody put a rope in and tied to a stake in the hopes of trying to get that tree to grow straight. Our body is intelligent, our body is dynamic, and our body has a lot of pieces and parts that all have to work in harmony or they all don't. And so you have to treat them all together. Now, interestingly, what I will say is that a lot of times we find that certain hormone metabolism disruptions, certain neurotransmitter ratio problems, um, even certain uh, bone density differences, even micronutrient deficiencies, uh, selenium, manganese, um, vitamin D, those have all been implicated previously by other studies, other authors worldwide in idiopathic scoliosis. And a lot of these, as we find, actually have different genetic variants that may well be responsible for the manifestation of these downstream metabolic problems. And the reason why it's important to look at it that way is, of course, if you test a child genetically and, and find some of these genetic variants, well, of course, you can't change a genetic variant. But what you can do is you can take steps to mitigate the impact of that genetic variant on that person's physiology. And let me give you uh, one example. The, there is a genetic SNP or a genetic variant, let's say, that is responsible for the downstream conversion of estrogen. In children who can't process estrogen correctly, especially in females, if they are allowed to continue that abnormal physiology, having estrogen imbalances creates disturbances in bone growth signaling. And even more importantly, it also contributes to the elevated risk of um, breast tumors in adult females by, I believe, 20 to 25%. 
So there are potentially significant ramifications of these genetic variants far beyond just the development of uh, or progression of scoliosis. So if we find that kind of genetic variant on somebody's profile, there are natural things that we can do. For example, that genetic variant is responsible for your body or telling your body to produce a certain enzyme. Well, if you're genetically not able to efficiently produce that enzyme, the nice thing is that from a natural supplement perspective, you can supplement with that enzyme and hence bypass that genetic variant. Now, again, you can't solve the genetic variant and you can't uh, get rid of that genetic variant. So it may well be that in a person who has a genetic variant has to be on that given supplement or enzyme replacement on a long-term basis to maintain normal physiology. But in most cases, for our, from our perspective, we look at the impact of these genetic variants on scoliosis at a minimum of time at which the child is still growing. Once, the, once a child is done growing and they've reached skeletal maturity, then it becomes more of a family decision or a personal decision as to whether or not they want to continue to take that enzyme replacement, for example, not only for the potential of that curve to get worse long-term, depending on what their curve measures, but also if they want to try to mitigate some of those other health consequences of that genetic variant. And in some cases, like I mentioned with the estrogen metabolism gene variant, the impact on the potential for breast tumors. So there are, there are a lot of advantages to looking at this from a genetic perspective and seeing how those genetic variants start to impact all of these other health parameters downstream. And then that allows us effectively then to intervene at the most upstream level possible to sort of get the result we're looking for. So really, I think at the end of the day, um, again, to sort of reiterate, if you are any clinician, I don't care if you're a PT, if you're a chiropractor, if you're an orthotist, if you're a pediatrician, if you're a pediatric orthopedic surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon who does complex spine surgery. There, there are some of those out there as well. Whoever is treating scoliosis, doesn't matter who you are, if you are not taking all of these other known factors into account for each and every child you manage, your chance of success is for just frankly going to be less. Whatever physical treatment that child is doing, if these things are not addressed, is going to be hampered by the fact that these still exist. So to me, the advantage of ScoliSmart is simple. We take all of this information into account, the vast majority of which this information we didn't publish, we didn't come up with this. We are simply using the information that's available and synthesizing it in a different way. Why? Because patients, especially scoliosis patients, need to be treated and managed in the most comprehensive way possible. That way it just uh, in, dramatically increases our chances of success. In fact, uh, very briefly, uh, we published a study back in um, 2017 where we tested the idea of neurotransmitter disruptions in children who did Smart boot camp. And how improving those neurotransmitter ratios would impact their curve measurements when they followed up six months after boot camp. And what we found was that in the children who followed and 
and took the recommendations for the neurotransmitter uh, aspect of the treatment, meaning took supplements for it or did dietary changes or both, um, not only was that group of children likely to maintain their benefit, but a significant chunk of them actually still improved beyond where they were when they initially left boot camp in terms of their curve measurement. To contrast that, in the children who did the exact same boot camp, but yet did not um, take the nutrient recommendations or dietary slash lifestyle recommendations for any existing neurotransmitter disruptions, although the majority of them were still able to maintain at least with uh, within a margin of error their improvements from boot camp, but there was a, a sizable amount of that group whose curves started going back to what they were at baseline. And from that point forward, that was really more confirmation to me than anything that, look, if this child and this family are going to make the commitment to not only coming, perhaps traveling from a distance, flying from out of state or out of country, as we often get, uh, to do this boot camp program, but also to make the commitment to follow through with it at home, to do the exercises we ask of them to do at home, and to potentially have to do it for two, three, four, five, six years, we obviously want to make sure that we do, for our part, that we do everything possible to give that boot camp program the best chance to work. So if you're not addressing these, quite frankly, there is really, frankly, no point in this day and age of doing any type of scoliosis therapy unless you are specifically looking at these factors. Because if you're not, your physical treatment, I'm sorry to say, is in all likelihood probably going to fail. And that's why you see a lot of uh, orthopedic surgeons, for example, and of course, some might argue that they're pessimist or, or what have you, but you know, a lot of surgeons will tell patients, for example, you know, the braces don't work, exercises don't work, none of this stuff works. Well, that might be true, but it also might only be their observation because again, in kids who are getting those therapies, 90 something percent of the time, that's the only thing they're doing. You know, a surgeon or an orthotist making a brace is not going to do anything about somebody's progesterone level. An orthopedic surgeon or orthotist is not going to do anything to investigate genomic variants in an idiopathic scoliosis case. Orthopedic surgeons may refer for genetic testing if they feel like that the scoliosis is actually syndromic. Like, for example, maybe they suspect a child has Marfan syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos or you know a child with Down syndrome, more obvious one, where there's a specific underlying cause to that scoliosis. But here I'm talking about true idiopathic curves where there is no consensus known cause of that curvature. There are no doctors out there that are investigating these things. And these things, like I said, have been out here forever. The problem becomes most of this data that's published is done really in an academic setting. And none of this data up until Scully Smart came along really has been implemented into day-to-day -day practice. And I think that's the biggest missing link in everybody's treatment modality. I think if every physical exercise treatment and every bracing protocol were to all of a sudden pick up the Smart version of testing and non-spinal scoliosis management in terms of you know, genetic management, genetic variant management, hormone 
management, neurotransmitter management, all of these things, if all of the exercise methods started to figure this out and, and start to apply this into their clinical practices, I think all of them would see that their success rate go up. But the problem is they don't. And a lot of them, unfortunately, don't really know where to start. So um, until then, I, I guess we're kind of the, the, the lone therapy out on the island, so to speak, trying to address a patient uh, as an entire patient, not just as a kind of a crooked spine walking into the door. Um, and, I, and I can't stress loud enough, um, emotionally enough, that, look, you have to treat every child and, frankly, every adult with scoliosis you have to treat them as a whole person. All of this stuff has to be investigated. So whenever you get a phone consult from a Scully Smart doctor, such as myself, um, maybe at our Pennsylvania office, Wisconsin office, New York office, wherever it may be, what you're going to find is you will get a recommendation as to whether or not your child is fit or a good candidate for boot camp. But also you're going to hear about some of these other testings that we very routinely recommend because frankly, you have to. Not every child gets the exact same testing. And of course, there are ways that we do that once we have sort of interviewed the child, interviewed the family, that we can sort of drill down on what clinical tests are probably more important for that child in terms of a, a, a priority list. But every child will typically get some form of this lab testing because again, it's the only way to, to kind of get a complete analysis of that particular child. And so then it allows us to be, or to implement the, the most, uh, I should say the, the most complete management strategy there is, bar none, period. So that, that's sort of uh, how, when we do clinical consults with patients, we normally do them by phone. Um, and you can always look us up on treatingscoliosis.com. And, uh, you can also find us. Uh, we are very active in the Scoliosis Warriors group on Facebook. And uh, coming soon, you will also hear uh, Scoli Nation is in the works. So uh, look out for that too. But otherwise, uh, you're going to start to see the see these come through here. Uh, this will be cataloged uh, on our YouTube channel, uh, as well as it will be uploaded into the Warriors group so everybody can, can share this and go ahead and, and share this far and wide because, frankly, Every doctor out there, every family out there, every patient out there who is in pain, who's in suffering, they need to get this information because most people don't even know this exists. And most people don't even know that this 30 years worth of research on all of these other non-spinal aspects of scoliosis, nobody even knows they ex even exist or better yet, what to even do about them. So please help us spread the word, help us get this information out there so that uh, we have the opportunity to help as many families as possible. Again, I'm Dr. Mark Morningstar uh, on our Scully Smart podcast, video podcast. Uh, thank you for tuning in, and I will see you next time. Thanks.